Well, as we begin this morning, I want to start by asking you to take a moment and think about how you introduce yourself to someone uh, the first time you meet them. How do you introduce yourself to someone the first time that you meet them? Uh, Take a moment and think with with me about what you normally say. Probably start off with what? Hi, my name is... So you probably start off with your name. Hi, my name is Ryan. And then you might say something about why you're there, right? Hi, my name is Ryan, and I'm new here. Or... I'm Ryan, and I've come to pick up my daughter, Riley, or my wife and I have come to welcome you to the neighborhood, or whatever, you know, whatever thing you would, you would say. But once you get past those, those opening things, hi, my name is, this is why I'm here, what things do you share about yourself? What do you normally emphasize to someone the first time you meet them? What do you want them to know about you? Talk about your family? A lot of us do. Talk about your job? You talk about your hobbies, or your goals, or your heritage, or your favorite sports teams. It's kind of tough to figure that out this morning, who's rooting for who. But what things do you focus on when you're introducing yourself to somebody, meeting them for the first time? Now, now, as you're thinking about that, let me ask you this question. What would you do if you only had a sentence or two to introduce yourself? You only had a sentence or two to describe yourself. What if, what if your space, your time to describe yourself was extremely limited? How would you boil down the essence of you? What things would you choose to include? What things would end up on the the mental cutting room floor? You know, what things are essential to you and what things could you not mention and you'd still be you? And I'm asking you to think through these questions this morning because this morning I want us to think about our identity. Our identity. Who we are and how, how, who you are and, and how you see who you are is extremely important. I mean, we view our world, our life, what we treasure, what we ignore. We make value judgments every day based on our identity, based on our identity. Think with me about this. A married man views his life, his job, how he approaches coming home, what he plans to do on the weekend. He views things very differently than a single man would, or at least he should. (laughs) Uh, A mom of a toddler approaches her day in a very different way than a mom with older kids or a woman without children. Uh, For a mom of a toddler, getting 15 minutes to take a nice, relaxing, uninterrupted shower, um, they view that like the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus. They used to believe that it existed, but now they're pretty sure it's just made up. You see, who we are, how how we see ourselves, that defines our, our values, our goals, our outlook on life. Our identity is tied up to our to our our hope, our joy, our dreams, and our purpose. And that's why it's so important that we truly understand who we are. That's why it's important that we truly understand who we are. You see, if we get our identity wrong or we build our identity on something unworthy of guiding our our dreams and our hopes and our purpose, we can end up easily confused, overwhelmed, and frustrated. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you see yourself simply as an employee of whatever company you work for. You build your entire life on your job, and people do this, right? Who am I? Well, I'm this person. I work here. This is who I am. Then what happens to your life if if you get laid off or if the company goes out of business or when you retire? There's a lot of people who've, who've done that very thing, build their identity around their job, but when that job is gone, they end up confused and frustrated because, in a sense, they no longer know who they are. They, they've lost their identity. And I think a similar thing can happen to parents, especially, I think, to, 
to moms because that particular job is so demanding. Can I get an amen, moms, from that one? But because it's so demanding, it can become the only lens through which you see yourself. It can become the only lens through which you see yourself. But if, here's the thing. If you build your entire life wrapped up in your kids, wrapping up your identity and your parenting of them, what happens when your kids grow up and move out? What, what happens when they make choices that differ from, quote unquote, the way that they were raised? Again, if we get our identity wrong, or we try to build our identity on something unworthy of guiding our dreams and hopes and purpose, we can end up easily confused, overwhelmed, and frustrated. And sadly, I think this is where too many people live. They're either confused about who they are, or they're trying to build their identity on something that's not sufficient to truly support our hopes and our joys and our purpose. And so this morning, as we return to Paul's letter to Colossians, I want to talk about this issue of identity. The, the importance of a right understanding of who we are. And we're going to do that this morning because Paul, as he begins his letter to the Colossians, he takes time to remind them of who they are. Take your Bibles and turn over to Colossians, the book of Colossians chapter 1. <coughs> Colossians chapter 1. And, and last Sunday, we, we launched a new study in this wonderful book of the Bible. And as we launched this new study last week, I explained to you that, that the question at the heart of this book of Colossians is this, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? This book, this letter to the Colossians is a letter written by a man who knew the sufficiency of Christ to a church that needed to be reminded of it. Paul wrote this letter to help the Colossians understand the sufficiency of their savior. He wrote it to help them understand that Jesus is indeed enough. But here's the thing. Paul wasn't teaching the sufficiency of Christ in a vacuum. He wasn't teaching it as though it was some abstract truth in a theological textbook. Paul was teaching the Colossians about the sufficiency of Christ because it was in Christ that they were to find their identity. He wanted them to understand the sufficiency of being in Christ. The Colossians needed to realize what it meant for them, as Paul says in chapter 2, verse 7, to be rooted and built up in Christ. They needed to understand what that meant. The Colossians needed to grow in seeing the, the strength, the joy, the glory, and the sufficiency of finding their identity in Jesus. And guess what? So do we. So do we. We need to grow in, in, in understanding and seeing the strength, the joy, the glory, and the sufficiency of finding our identity in Christ. But here's the thing with this book. Paul doesn't wait until he gets into the heart of the letter to start talking about the believer's identity in Christ. He actually opens the letter, his greeting, by reminding the Colossians of who they are. Look at the opening words of this letter. Colossians chapter 1, first two verses. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the, what does he say? To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, what we find here, as I pointed out last week, is the typical pattern in the beginning of any letter in the first century. In the first century, when you wrote a letter, you began by saying who it was from, then you said who it was to, and then you included a greeting. And we find all of those things here. But although this letter follows the, the typical pattern of any letter in the first century, Paul's opening here isn't boilerplate. He isn't just using some generic greeting. What we find here is that Paul has, Paul's greeting here has been drenched in gospel truth. Paul's taken the typical cultural greeting, the typical cultural form, and he has baptized it in Christian reality. 
Look at what we see here. First, we see this in the way that he introduces himself. And we looked at this in detail last Sunday, but let me just remind you. Paul begins his letter by describing himself as an authoritative messenger. This is a message from who? What does it say? From an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This isn't just the writings and opinions of some guy in the first century. This isn't just the musings on life of some mere man. No, Paul opens this letter by revealing its divine authority. This is a message through Paul, but really from who? From Christ Jesus. This is a message through Paul, but really from Christ Jesus. You see, this, this letter might follow the, the standard, standard pattern of a first century letter, but we're here studying it this morning because it's more than just a letter from the first century, right? This is the very word of God. This is the very word of God. God, the Holy Spirit, communicated and preserved this letter this message about the sufficiency of Christ, because this, this message wasn't just for the Colossians living in the first century. This message about the sufficiency of Christ was for all the church of Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years, us included. Amen? God knew we needed this letter. God knew we needed this letter. This is God's word for us. And here's the thing. God chose to communicate this message about Christ's sufficiency through a messenger, Paul, a man who, who truly understood the sufficiency of Christ. Well, the sufficiency of Christ and, and finding our identity in the sufficiency of Christ was a truth that Paul, I mean, this guy really understood this. Uh, for Paul, Christ's sufficiency wasn't merely some, some abstract academic concept. You know, something we talk about as Christians, but we don't really live out. No, for Paul, this was, this was everything. This was his, his air that he breathed. You know, the food and water that sustained him. This was his everyday reality, the sufficiency of Christ. Again, as we looked at last Sunday, Paul was a man who knew hardship, right? Right? We talked about that. I mean, how many times was the, the 39, the 40 less one lashes across the back, right? So, so Paul was a man who, who had suffered greatly, who, who knew hardship, he knew struggle. He was a man who knew anxiety and stress and pressure. Remember in that section we read from 2 Corinthians last week, on him, in addition to all of the physical things he suffered, on top of that was all the pressure for the churches, right? Who, who's out there struggling, he says, and I'm not feeling that. So Paul was a man who, who knew struggle, he knew hardship, he knew pressure and anxiety and stress. He knew all those things, all those things that that we struggle with, right? Do you ever struggle with pressure? <laughs> you ever struggle with stress? You ever struggle with those things? We all do. And Paul knew that. He struggled with those things probably in a greater way than, than most of us, if not all of us, ever will. But he was also a man who'd come to understand that Christ's strength and Christ's wisdom, especially Christ's grace, was more than sufficient to handle all of those things. And more. You see, Paul understood his identity in Christ. And being in Christ was what sustained him every day in the most difficult of trials. So as I said last week, Paul's theology of the sufficiency of Christ wasn't some academic theory. It was theology from the trenches. And he was out there on the front lines, and this is what sustained him. It was the tr this truth that both Paul understood and he experienced on a daily basis in the most difficult of situations. So God used Paul, a man who truly understood the sufficiency of Christ, to write a letter to a church that needed to be reminded of it. 
But again, look at Paul's description of the recipients of this letter. Does Paul simply say, to the Colossians, greetings? Is that what he says? No, that's not what he says at all. What we find here is that Paul has bigger thoughts, gospel thoughts, when it comes to their identity. He doesn't even say, look at the text, he doesn't even say, to the Colossians. What does he say? Look at it. He says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. You see, he wants them to understand that their identity is found in something more than simply where they live. Their identity is found in something more than simply where they live. But here's the thing. It would have been easy for them, and a bit discouraging, but it would have been easy for them to let their their geographical location define them. Let me tell you a little bit about Colossae. Let me tell you a little bit about the city where they live. I'll put a couple maps up here this morning. The, the city of Colossae was part of the Roman Empire, but as you can see from this map, uh, they were a long way from Rome. So where that red dot is, that's Colossae. So they were a little bit of a distance from Rome. And, and they were actually part of an area that was called by the Romans Phrygia, which was a, a part of the province of Asia. So you can see this whole area right in here. So they were part of that province of the Roman Empire. Uh, I thought I'd put up here also a See if I can get it to go. There we go. A modern map. So you can see where in the modern world the Colossae would have been located. So they're off there in the Republic of Turkey. And you can see there's Italy and there's Greece. And in Greece there, that's where Corinth and those and Philippi would have been in that, that area. But um, that's where, where Colossae was located. And here's another map for you. Colossae was part of what was called the Lycus Valley. It was this fertile area through which the, the Meander River, that's a blue line, ran through that area. And in that, that fertile area, there were three prominent cities. You see Colossae. And then 12 miles to the west, there was a city called Laodicea. Remember that city from the book of Revelation? And 15 miles northwest was another city called Heropolis. And both those other two cities, Laodicea and Heropolis, are mentioned later on in this letter uh, to the Colossians, mentioned in chapter 2 and chapter 4. And like I said, Laodicea is mentioned in the book of Revelation, uh, Christ's letter to the churches there. Remember what he said about the Laodiceans? And you're not hot nor cold, and so I want to do what? Spit you out of my mouth. Uh, What a claim to fame that was for them. But in the the 3rd and 4th century before Christ, Colossae was the main city in this area. It was actually the, the big deal city. A New Testament scholar, Douglas Moo, he explains that the prominence of Colossae was due especially to its location at the crossroads, he says, of two well-traveled highways. One ran east-west, connecting the coastal cities of Ephesus and Sardis to the interior east, and another running north and south. So you see, Colossae was at the center of these trade routes, road running north-south and east-west. And being such a key stop on the trade route uh, in such a great and fertile location, Colossae developed its own industry. It didn't just have goods passing through, but it developed its own goods. One of the the most famous was this high-quality dark red wool that they called Colossian wool. So at at that time, 3rd and 4th century before Christ, the city was a a thriving metropolis. But here's the thing. Something happened. (laughs) Those crossroads got moved. Uh, Not long before the time of Christ, uh, the main trade route that ran through Colossae was moved to the neighboring city of Laodicea. And it was decided that Colossae could just be bypassed. 
How many of you ever seen that, that Pixar movie, Cars? You guys seen that movie? Remember that movie? There was a little town there. Remember the name of the town? Radiator Springs. Good old Radiator Springs. And back in the day, Radiator Springs had been a pretty lively place. Route 66 ran through Radiator Springs. But then came what? Remember? The freeway. The freeway. And Radiator Springs got bypassed. And anybody who's seen that movie knows that that's when everything changed for Radiator Springs. That bypass drained the life out of that town. And that's kind of what happened to Colossae. That's kind of what happened to Colossae. With the bypass, with the trade route being moved over to Laodicea, Colossae became an afterthought as a city. It became a second-class town in comparison with Heropolis and especially Laodicea. And so by the time Paul writes to them uh, around 60 AD, it, it had most likely been this way for almost 100 years. The city had a great history, but those days were behind them. And I bring that all, all up to say uh, that they could have let where they're from, you know, we're, we're just the radiator springs of the Lycus Valley. They could have let that be what defined them. That was probably a very real temptation for them. It could have been tempting for these people because of where they're from to simply see themselves as second class. Yeah, it would have been nice to be born over there in Laodicea. They've got more money than they know what to do with over there in Laodicea. But we're just a bunch of Colossians. We're just like the redheaded stepchildren of the Lycus Valley. You know, that kind of idea. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking it's a good thing for us that, that we're never tempted to define ourselves that way, Right? We're never tempted to look at where we're from, you know, the town we grew up in, the family that we grew up in, where we live, and let that be what defines us, right? Yeah, it would be nice to have a place over there on Taft's Island, but we live in Rhodey Park. Oh, you live in Rhodey Park? Oh, boy. Well, at least you don't live over there in South Prairie. I kid about that, but it's easy to fall into that way of thinking, right? Easy to fall into that way of thinking. It's easy to start to define our, our worth, our value, our identity, by where we're from. And that would have been a very real temptation for these folks that were living in Colossae to simply see themselves, oh yeah, we're just the second class Colossians here in the Lycus Valley. But along with that, I think it also would have been easy for them to be, be tempted to see themselves not just as the second class Colossians, but also as second class Christians. Second class Christians. And I say that because of the status of their church. This is from commentator J.B. Lightfoot. He explains, listen to this, I'm glad the Colossians never had to read J.B. Lightfoot saying this, but he says, Colossae was the least important city to which any epistle of St. Paul was addressed. Colossae was the least important church to which any epistle of St. Paul was addressed. You see, here's the thing. The Colossians weren't the church in Rome, a church in the capital city of the civilized world. They weren't the church in Philippi, that church that had such a close and personal relationship with Apostle Paul. They weren't even the church in Corinth. At least Paul had actually been to Corinth. You see, Paul had never been there to Colossae. He never met most of the people there. As he puts it in chapter 2, they hadn't seen him face to face. You see, unlike every other New Testament letter from Paul, except for the book of Romans, Paul isn't writing here to church in which he's already ministered. Normally, Paul would write to churches where, where he'd been, where he'd served, where he'd ministered, churches he'd planted. But Paul doesn't have that type of relationship with the folks in Colossae. Actually, the Colossian church was planted by somebody else. Look there in chapter 1, down at verse 7, Paul talks about a guy named Epaphras. And it appears Epaphras is the one who planted the church in Colossae. Paul explains there in verse 6 that the Colossians had heard 
and understood the grace of God in truth. They'd heard and understood the gospel. And then in verse 7, he says, just as you learned it from who? Epaphras. They had to learn the gospel. They'd been exposed to the gospel. They'd been discipled up in the gospel by Epaphras. He was the guy who had planted the church. And, and this Epaphras was himself from Colossae. If you were to go to chapter 4, verse 12, you see Paul describes Epaphras there as one of you. He was from Colossae. He was a local. And he's the one who'd been shepherding and ministering to these people. Now, most scholars believe that Epaphras had met Paul and, and possibly came to Christ under Paul's ministry in Ephesus. I have another map for you here. You can see from this map that Ephesus was a major coastal city, a major port city for this, this area. Again, Colossae is way over there, the red dot. But Ephesus was this major port city, this uh, major coastal city for this area. And if you go to Acts chapter 19, there you read that Paul ministered in Ephesus for, two year, for over two years. And Luke tells us that the ministry was so effective. This is again from Acts chapter 19. He says that all the residents of Asia, that is Asia Minor, this area up here, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's how, how amazing Paul's ministry was there in Ephesus. You see, because Ephesus was this port city, you had people that were always coming and going. They would come to Ephesus for travel. They would come to Ephesus for goods. They would come there because it was a major cultural center in the area. They'd come there for entertainment. And many of those who ventured into Ephesus were hearing the gospel through Paul and the church that was there. So it's believed that through that ministry, uh, Epaphras had come to Christ. He'd been discipled. And then he went back to Colossae to reach his neighbors, his family, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we see in the book of Colossians is that God had blessed Epaphras' ministry. Colossians had come to Christ. They'd gotten saved. In verses 3 to 5, look at the text there. Paul, Paul praises their faith and the love, the faith and the love of the Colossians that was grounded in gospel hope. Down in verse 8, he talks about their love in the spirit. And then turn over to chapter 2, verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5. Look at what he says here. He tells them, even though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your what? Your faith in who? In Christ. So through Epaphras, God had started a genuine, growing church there in the city of Colossae. But here's the thing. Everything wasn't smooth sailing in this new church. Uh, As chapter 2 makes clear, the church in Colossae was a church under attack. As we'll look at in more detail when we get to chapter 2, there were people, some probably outside the church, some within the church, who were teaching that Jesus alone isn't enough. They thought that in order to really be pleasing to God, you needed to do things like keep Jewish religious festivals or embrace a monastic-type life of self-denial or, or seek mystical visions like messages from angels. And as I was thinking about that list, I was thinking, unfortunately, that's, that's too much of what you find in many of the Christian bookstores, right? Here's what you need. You need to keep these Jewish religious festivals. You, you, you need this monastic, ascetic type lifestyle. You need mystical visions. You know, you need to read the book about somebody being 90 minutes in heaven. You don't, okay? But that kind of Jesus plus approach to Christianity was what's starting to infiltrate the church there in Colossae. Jesus alone isn't enough. You need all these other things. So what it appears happened is that Epaphras called for reinforcements. Paul, at this point, he's no longer in Ephesus. He's actually in prison in Rome when he's writing this letter. You read about this in the book of Acts. Paul had gone to Jerusalem 
And from Jerusalem had ended up where? All the way in Rome in prison for sharing the gospel. So Paul's in Rome in prison for sharing the gospel and Epaphras traveled there to see him. And he told Paul the good news about this church getting started, about their faith. But he also sought Paul's help in dealing with this Jesus plus teaching that was threatening the church. So that's what brought about this letter. This, that was the situation there in the Colossian church. And, and as you think about that, it could have been very easy, very tempting for them to let that situation define them. To let that situation define them. Can't you just imagine the Colossians saying, here we are, you know, in the second class city, and we're part of a church that can't claim to be started by Paul or any other apostle. And now our pastor has gone to get help in dealing with all of us. What's Paul going to say to us? What's Paul going to think of us? How will he see us? Will he just see us as a bunch of second-class Christians? And again, it's a good thing we never battle temptations like that, right? It's a good thing we never battle the temptation. We never, we're never tempted to define ourselves by the situation that we find ourselves in, right? I can't believe I got laid off from my job. Why didn't they lay off somebody else? I guess that's just who I am. I'm Mr. Unnecessary. Or all the rest of the parents, all the rest of the parents seem to have their act together. What's wrong with me? Why is this so hard for me? I guess it's just who I am. I'm Mrs. Failing Parent. Or, you know, people used to be interested in my opinion. They used to seek me out and ask me to get involved. But now nobody asks me. You can almost hear it in the Eeyore voice, right? Now nobody wants to talk to me. Nobody cares about what I have to say. I guess I'm just Mr. Husband. And on and on we could go. It's a very real, very easy temptation to fall into, to let our situation, our circumstances, define us. You ever tempted towards that? Yeah, I think all of us are. But here's the thing. I bring all this up to show you that Paul calls these Colossians, and I think us, to think differently about what defines us. Think differently about what defines us. Here in his greeting, he doesn't use where they are from or how they got started or their current struggles to define them. Instead, he shows them that they are defined by, you want to note this down, they are defined by gospel realities. That's what defines them. They're defined by gospel realities. They're defined by who they are in Christ. That's where their identity is found. He addresses them as saints and faithful brothers in Christ. I was thinking about this. How sweet, how precious that must have been for them to hear that. As I said last week, when they first received this letter, all the church would have been gathered and the letter would have been read to everyone and I'm sure they're wondering, what's Paul going to say to us? How's he going to see us? What a blessing it must have been to their hearts to hear saints, faithful brothers. Paul doesn't think we're second class. He sees us as saints. He's calling us faithful brothers. And Paul calls them that because he's looking at them, mark this down, through the lens of the gospel. He's looking at them through the lens of the gospel. We actually find four gospel realities here that Paul uses to define the Colossians. Let me quickly unpack these realities for you, four of them. First, he calls them saints. Not, not second class, not the problem children in a church that I didn't start, but saints. Now, now what does Paul mean by that term, saints? Too often... When our modern ears hear that term saints, we think of some super spiritual, you know, some super religious person who's reached a whole other level of holiness. We think of someone who's been enshrined for how godly they are. But here's the thing, that's not what Paul means when he uses this term. Actually, when Paul uses this term, he's taking a prominent Old Testament teaching and he's applying it 
to New Testament believers. As one commentator explained, the term that Paul uses here taps into an important Old Testament tradition according to which Israel was called out from among the nations to be God's own people. And that's really what this term means. It speaks of those who are called out, those who are separated, those who are set apart. Literally, the Greek reads here, to the holy ones, to the holy ones. And Paul wants the Colossians to understand that's who you are. That that they are, by God's choice, not by, by their amazing spiritual deeds, but by God's choice, they are holy ones. They are those who God has chosen to set apart for himself. That's what the word holy means, right? It means set apart for God. And in the Old Testament, Israel, they were the holy ones. They were set apart for God from among all the other nations. They were his holy ones. And here in the New Testament, Paul takes that idea, that term, and he uses it to describe who? Us. He uses it to describe the church. They are, we are, God's holy ones. God set apart people, set apart from sin, set apart from this world, set apart by our future in glory, set apart by our relationship with the triune God, set apart because we are in Christ. You are God's precious possession, his own beloved people, because you are by his choice in his son. And that's how Paul first addresses these Colossians. Again, he doesn't see them as second class. He doesn't view them through the lens of where they're from or or from how big their church is or, or what they do for a living. He sees them through the lens of the gospel. He sees them as the beloved people of God, God's holy ones. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, that's how you need to see yourself. That's how you need to see yourself. Who are you? Who are you? Well, according to the Bible, you are a saint. Husbands, you can go home this afternoon and say, hey, guess what? Pastor Ryan said, I'm a saint. You got to treat me that way. Don't abuse that. But this is, this is who you are. If you are in Christ, you are a holy one. You're a holy one. This is your identity. You are part of God's special, chosen, beloved people. You're part of his holy ones. And here's the beautiful thing. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter where you now live. Your current situation doesn't color this. I meet Christian people from time to time. They say, well, I'm the black sheep of the flock. No, you're not. If you're in Christ, you are a holy one. You're a holy one. You're part of God's special, chosen, beloved people. That's your identity according to the Bible. And and don't you see how beautiful this is here? Paul takes this common cultural form, this, this greeting... And he doesn't just boilerplate it. He doesn't just say, well, here's a generic greeting. Hi, how are you doing? He baptizes it in Christian truth. Think how that must have ministered to the hearts of those there in Colossae. We're not second class. We're precious to God. We're his holy ones. But not only that, not only the holy ones, but Paul goes on to remind them that they're part of the family. This is the second gospel reality that he uses to to find them. He calls them what? Brothers. Brothers. Now, before the ladies start to think that they can just tune out at this point, I want you to understand that that Paul is not using a gender-exclusive term here. This term was actually a common way for Paul to refer to all believers, male and female, in the church. This word is a word that stresses relational intimacy. As one commentator put it, the ancients called one another Adelphos, brother, as a way of indicating that the association was a second home. Think about that. It's a way of saying, my relationship with you... It's like my second home. Isn't that beautiful? 
When we get together, it's like I'm home. My relationship with you is my second home. That's what they would say when the Christians would say, brother, I think of you as my own family, as my own family. And again, how encouraging that must have been for the Colossians to hear. I mean, even though many of them had never met Paul, even though he'd never ministered there, even though the church was planted by somebody else, Paul says, I think of you, I greet you like you're my own family. That's how precious you are to me. You're all my brothers and sisters. That is the way that Paul saw them. And he saw them that way because he saw them through the lens of the gospel. He saw them through the lens of the gospel. See, in Christ, we are all one family. Amen? We are all one family. We have one father who loves us and cares for us. We have one Lord who guides us and shepherds us and provides for us. And there is one spirit who is uniting all of us, making us members of one body, giving us love and care and compassion for one another, for all the members of the gospel family. I was thinking about this this week. Think about this. The family that you have in the gospel is your forever family. So you can look at that as a positive or a negative. Negative, you're stuck with me forever. But this is your forever family. I mean, you might think you're close to your biological family, but honestly, nothing compares to your gospel family. I mean, what we share, our commonality, surpasses ethnicity and gender and economic status and nationality and even blood. Because here's what we share. Here's our commonality. We share the reality that we were all purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. We share that reality. We are all part of Jesus as of one flock with one shepherd. And we will be together delighting in that, that shepherd who saved us for all eternity. I don't know when we get there to glory if Dave and Luke are going to be leading us in praising the shepherd or just standing next to us singing. But I do know this. We will all have wonderful voices. Amen? So we're longing for that day. But that's our gospel reality. That's the way we need to define ourselves. That's the way we need to see ourselves. And brothers and sisters, that's the way we need to see each other. That's the way we need to see each other. We need to see each other as part of one family. I'm going to go on my soapbox here just for a moment. (laughs) One thing I really dislike in in the church in the West, because I think it, it threatens this truth, is segregation in the church. And what I mean by that is, especially in the West, we like to to break up the church into these little groups. You know, we have the young marrieds, we have the empty nesters, we have the singles, we have the marrieds without kids, the college and career, and on and on and on we go. Now, I'm not against having occasional studies for those groups. We have a marriage study, we have a parenting study. But we have to be so careful, because here's the thing, we can end up dividing the family. We can end up making somebody think, well, I'm not really part, because I'm not part of this group. We can end up dividing the family. I mean, whoever heard of a segregated family? Right? It doesn't make any sense. But if we're not careful, we can do that as a church. We can lose sight of the fact that we are all one family. And as one family, guess what? We need each other. Amen? We need each other. Like a good family, we need to learn from one another. We need the older teaching the younger. And whoever falls in that category, I'll let you work that out. But we need the older teaching the younger. We need generations lovingly challenging and encouraging each other. We need the kids to realize that they're just as much a part of this as anybody else because we're all one family. We're all one family. We're gospel brothers and sisters. And so we need to see each other this way. So let's stop defining each other by how much money a person makes or the state of their marriage 
or how they're doing in their parenting or whose sports teams they like. Jessica, we still love you. You're part of our family, even though you're wearing that abomination today. But we got to see each other that way. We need to realize that we are forever family. Amen? We're forever family. We are this gospel family in Christ, so let's treat each other that way. But notice here, Paul doesn't just call the Colossians brothers. Actually, in a somewhat surprising twist, he calls them what? Faithful brothers. Faithful brothers. And I think it's surprising that he uses that term for two reasons. First, this is a rare word in Paul's letters. In Paul's writings, he he takes an awful lot of time to talk about faith. But often when he's talking about faith, he's talking about a noun. Faith, something that you have. And he doesn't often use the term as an adjective, faithful, something that you are. So this usage here in the opening of Colossians is rather rare for Paul. And realizing this is a rare term, it's, more, it's even more surprising that he would use this rare word to describe a people who are in a church that's having some struggles. As chapter 2, again, makes clear, it seems like there were some in this church that, that not only were being challenged by this teaching that said you needed Jesus plus, but there were some in this church that actually had succumbed to that teaching. They'd taken it hook, line, and sinker. They were starting to get caught up in this idea that we need these other things. So here's my question. Why does Paul use this word to describe these folks in this church? Why does he use this rare word to describe these folks? Well, first, I think he uses it because there were some in the church who were persevering, who were keeping the faith. Although this church was under attack, it seems like there were many in the church who hadn't succumbed. They were still trying to cling to what they knew. That's why Paul says to them in chapter 2, verse 5, which we read earlier, that he rejoiced to see the firmness of their faith in Christ. So, so Paul sees that although this church is under attack and they're struggling, there, there are many that are there that are still, you know, hanging to what, clinging on to what they know. They're still hanging on. So here's the thing, and I love this about Paul. Here in the opening of the letter, he doesn't focus on their struggles. I say he focuses on their perseverance. He encourages them. He calls them faithful. But I also believe that Paul uses this term to challenge them to remember what they're called to be what they're called to be. They and we are called to be faithful. We're called to be faithful. That too is part of our identity in Christ. We are called to be those who continue to exercise faith in Christ. That's what it means to be faithful. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means you keep clinging to Christ. You see, this side of glory, I got news for you. Maybe I'm just gonna burst your bubble, but you're not gonna be a perfect one. This side of glory, you're not gonna be perfect. Neither am I. But, but what we are to be are those who keep running to who? To Christ. Keep running to Christ. Keep clinging to Christ. Keep resting in him and trusting in him. And that's what these folks there in Colossae need to keep pursuing. They need to push away from that Jesus plus teaching and keep running to who? To Jesus. Keep running to Christ. They need to keep being who God has called them to be. Faithful brothers. Faithful brothers in Christ. In Christ. Uh, With those two words, Paul expresses a gospel reality that is foundational to all the other things we've just been talking about. We are holy ones. We are a gospel family. We are called to be faithful because we are in Christ. We're in Christ. This is so fundamental to our identity. And, And throughout this letter, Paul will unpack this key theme in a myriad of ways and expressions 
I was looking through the letter this week and just looking at how many times Paul addresses this issue. And he talks about being in Christ. He talks about being with Christ. He talks about Christ being in us. Some 30 times in this letter, it's just four chapters, just 90 verses. But some 30 times he talks about our, our union with Christ. And that union of Christ, that being in Christ and with Christ, having Christ in us, that's the grounds, as we'll see throughout this letter, that's the grounds of our hope and our joy and our peace. That's the grounds of our salvation. This is a fundamental truth of the gospel. Everything good that we get through the gospel comes to us. Why? Because of us? No, but because of who? Okay, yeah, I've lost you all this morning. It comes to us because of Christ. It comes to us because we are in in Christ, because we are united to Christ, because we are with Christ, because Christ is in us. It comes to us through Christ, through our union with him, through through being in him, everything changes for us. Take a moment, just do this quickly, but turn over to chapter three. Chapter three, and I just want you to see just for a moment how Paul describes this there in chapter three. So cool, when you, when you start reading one of the, the New Testament letters, especially those from Paul, and you look at his greeting, you'll find themes that he's going to unpack later on. This one in Christ, this is huge, as we'll see throughout the rest of the letter. <clears throat> but look at chapter three, verse one. Paul says to them, if then you have been raised with Christ, and it's assumed here that you have been. If you are a believer, you've been united with Christ, and in Christ's resurrection, you've been raised. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. You've died. And your life is hidden where? With Christ in God. And then this, look at this. When Christ, who what? Who is your life appears. Then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you see how fundamental this is for Paul? Christ, who is what? Your life. Your life. That, for Paul, this shapes everything. This shapes everything. This is who you are. Christ is your life. Christ is my life. This is who I am. This is who you are. We are those who are in Christ. Christ is Everything. He's everything. You're in Christ. And and this truth that being in Christ is so packed full of wonder and glory and power that we're going to spend the rest of this letter unpacking this glorious doctrine. It is the foundation of our identity as Christians. We are those who are in Christ. We're those who are in Christ. We'll go back to chapter 1. I'll look at verse 2 closes with Paul's words of greeting to these saints, to these faithful brothers. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And again, Paul has taken the cultural norm and he has baptized it in gospel truth. In, in the first century, a writer of a letter would often begin that letter with the word Karin, greetings. To, from, and then they would say Karin, greetings. That's the way they would start their letter. But Paul replaces here that Greek word Karin with another Greek word that sounds very similar but has a much deeper meaning. The Greek word charis, the Greek word for grace. Paul says to them, instead of greetings to you, he says grace to you. God's unmerited favor to you. May it be yours. Grace from God our Father. And don't miss the connection here because of who you are. Grace to you from the Father because you're in Christ, because you're in the Son. 
And not just grace, but also peace. Peace to you, Paul says. And the peace that Paul speaks of here is not simply a cessation of conflict. Instead, it's the sense of wholeness and well-being. It's the Hebrew idea in the word shalom. It's the idea of everything the way it should be. It's that peace that comes when everything is the way that it should be. And Paul says, because of who you are, because you are in Christ, may you know that kind of peace. True peace from God the Father. Grace and peace from God the Father because of who you are, because you are in Christ. This is the greeting that opens Paul's letter to the Colossians. But here's the thing. Again, it's so much more than just a boilerplate greeting. It's an opening declaration of the reality of our identity. Paul is saying, in a sense, I greet you this way because I know who you are. I see your identity through the lens of the gospel. Let me close this morning by asking you this question. Do you, do you see your identity through the lens of the gospel? Do you see your identity through the lens of the gospel? Or are you looking at other things, lesser things to define you? Let me take you back to that question I asked in the, in the introduction. What if you only had a sentence or two to introduce yourself? What would you say? What would you include? What is essential to your identity? What dominates the way that you see yourself? As Christians, we need to realize that we have the best answer to that question. We have the best answer to that question. We don't need to define, to find our identity in lesser things. Ultimately, we aren't defined by where we come from or how much money we make or education or the size of our family or the situation that we're in when you meet us. None of those things ultimately define us. We're defined by the reality that we are in Christ. Amen? We're defined by the reality that we are in Christ. And as those in Christ, we are holy ones. We are those who are precious to God, his own beloved people. As those in Christ, we've been blessed with a forever family, brothers and sisters with whom we will share eternity. You're not alone. You're not alone. And as those who are in Christ, we have a Savior who is always worthy of our trust, always worthy of our faithfulness. He will never, and I promise you this because the word of God promises you this, he will never disappoint you. Never let you down. Because here's the thing. Our Savior is more than enough. Our Savior is more than enough. He is our glorious and sufficient Jesus. He's more than enough. And as Christians, we find our identity in him. In him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I know as we talk about these truths this morning, it's one thing to talk about them, but it's another thing entirely when push comes to shove when we are confronted with our fears our discouragements our frustrations to really cling to the identity that you've given us in your son so I pray for my brothers and sisters I pray for my own heart to push off those temptations of defining ourselves by where we come from or the situation that we find ourselves in, the job that we do, the house that we live in, the way we look physically, the state of our marriage, the way things are going with our kids, how many pseudo friends we have on Facebook. 
Help us not to define ourselves by any of those lesser things when we have the glorious privilege of defining ourselves by being those who are in your son. What a blessing to be in Christ and to have all those blessings to be seen by you, the holy sovereign God of the universe, to be seen by you as holy ones. We know these hearts of ours, we know how easily they are bent towards sin and foolishness. But what a joy to know that because we're in Christ, because we are forgiven ones in Christ. You look at us and say, you are special. You are my beloved people. You are my holy ones. Father, help us to see one another, especially in this church body, as family. Help us to love each other that way as family because that's who we are in Christ. So I pray that, that this week, this month, this year, as, as push comes to shove, and maybe there's, there's conflicts at times or we struggle with one another to really see each other for who we are, to see each other through the lens of the gospel. That we are family and to love each other that way. And Father, help us not to lose sight of the fact that you have called us to be faithful. That though, though we struggle with sin, we struggle with our weaknesses, you've called us to keep clinging to Jesus. Keep resting in him. I pray for my own heart, so easy to drift from these things. Pray for my brothers and sisters as they find themselves this week, as we we will, in moments of temptation. Remind them of who they are. They're in Christ. Remind them that you've called them to be faithful, to keep resting in the Son. Father, what a blessing, what a privilege as a pastor, as a preacher, to be able to proclaim these truths and then rest in the work of your Spirit. So that's what I'm doing. Asking that you take these truths and drive them deep into our hearts. Help us to see ourselves as you do, as those who are in Christ. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.